Good morning, everybody, and hello from South Florida. I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, the founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host today of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are in your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. Well, like I said, good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful day down here in South Florida, and I know my Canadian friends always laugh when I say that. I'm wishing you all stay warm. Uh, but today, it's a great day for a friend of mine that's just come in to visit us from nearby West Palm Beach, Wellington, where she's living, but within a stone throw of me. And our special guest today is Miss Tanu Pena. And Tanu, are you there? I'm here. I'm really glad you're here. Everybody, Tanu and I met a couple of years ago at a Florida State University James Moran Institute entrepreneurial class. And it was probably, I'm looking at it, 2017. It was right after my book came out. And, of course, I went there to speak about my company, learn about my company, and I walk in and I end up at the end of the five days and everybody knew more about my book and about the woman behind the smile than they did about my company. But I'm back, I'm back in another class with JMI and Syracuse University, and I started thinking about, you know, a couple of years ago, and I'm like, Tanu, I haven't seen her. I've kind of stalked her on Facebook, and she's done some incredible things in the few years that we have not been together. So, my dear, let me just give a quick, quick bio, because we're going to talk about the things that you've done in your life rather than just having me read it. Okay. But Tanu is currently the editor of Banwo Magazine and the owner of A2IO Imprint, the publishing arm of her business consulting firm, Top Consulting Agency. She's a modern-day Renaissance woman with interests in various ventures that she actively pursues. Now, we're going to talk about this modern-day Renaissance woman because I've not really <laughs> heard that thing before. And when I heard you say that in an interview, I'm thinking, hmm, that's kind of interesting. So, Ms. Tanu, would you please just kind of fill my audience in on who you are? Where did you come from? Where did you grow up? And time's yours for a minute. Sure. Good morning, everyone. How is everyone doing? Uh, I'm so excited to be on, on Debbie's show. Um, so I am a first-generation American born in Washington, D.C. by Nigerian parents who at the time were students in the United States, I think it was the late 50s, early 60s. 
So I had the opportunity to grow up partially in the United States, and upon completion of my father's education and my mom's, they returned back to Nigeria, where I then had to go. I had no choice. I was only six. So um, we returned to Nigeria. Um, you know, I lived a whole different lifestyle there, um, going through the school system and just the whole cultural change and the environment change. And by the time I was um, 19, um, I had graduated, graduated the year previous and had asked my parents, like, okay, I really want to come back. And so, you know, um, their biggest problem was that we didn't have family here. And I said, you know what, I've been watching a lot of TV shows, and you can make it if you go back. So <laughs> um, my parents decided um, um, they were going to allow me to go back. And um, fortunately, there was a family friend of my father who was living in Toledo, Ohio, and uh, that's how I came to come back to the United States by myself. So I came back um, late, um, I think 1993 or two. It was winter, and I flew into New York, and uh, it was freezing. And um, the only thing I had with me at the time, aside from my clothes, that were more acclimated for a hot weather was my father's old jacket um, or his coat from the 70s. So, and that he gave me $3 worth of quarters and dimes and nickels to, um, you know, call the people that were going to pick me up. At that time, we didn't have smartphones or Instagram, Facebook, so I didn't know who was picking me up. So um, long story short, um, I started asking people, going up to people that look Nigerian and said, hey, are you looking for this person? And um, um, I wasn't able to find the people that were supposed to pick me up. So there was this lady there who I had spoken to on the, on the plane and asked her how to use the payphone. And she was watching me. And then she came up to me and said, you know, she doesn't feel comfortable leaving me here at the airport. So she's going to take me with her to her where she stayed, and we're going to call the people that's supposed to pick me up. And I put my faith in, you know, the universe, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to go with her because, you know, she was helpful um, when I was, you know, talking to her on the plane. So I went with her. And from there, um, we eventually got in contact with the people that's supposed to pick me up, and I got on Amtrak, and I headed to Ohio. So that was the beginning of my journey <laughs> in the United States. You are one brave young woman. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, I could say today we would never do that. I know. I would do that today. Um, back then, um, you know, I was a little bit naive and very trusting, um, green behind the ears, as you would say, coming from a culture where, um, you know, your neighbor was almost like family. So um, I didn't see anything wrong with that. Now I probably won't do that. Um, but the beautiful thing that came out of this story of how I, you know, ended up in Toledo was the fact that the woman that picked me up, we stayed at her cousin's house. Her cousin has now been a part of my family since then. When my brother came back as well, because all my siblings were born here, when he came back, he actually landed in New York and stayed with them. So they have become an integral part of my family now. So, you know, I'm blessed to have them. Very nice. Kenny, I don't know much about Nigeria. Um, big country. I, I actually um, interviewed a gal uh, that runs a cybersecurity group over there. Fabulous. Now, you know, Nigeria kind of gets the, the snub, from, especially from Americans. 
But it's a, where did you grow up and what kind of experiences did you have as a child over there? <clears throat> well, I grew up in the capital called Lagos State. Um, and um, it's a, you know what, there's no place you go that is, you know, you know the perfect environment or the perfect community. There were the ups and downs. But my story was uh, filled with a lot of good memories from just, you know, living with my grandmother and, you know, walking to school with friends and just doing things that I had never been exposed to living in the United States as a, a youngster. So over there, you know, we weren't really sheltered um, as much as we were in the United States that we have to stay in the house or go to the playground. You played wherever, you know, you can play on the streets, you can, you know, and I got hit by a car once, so oh, that was interesting. Um, but um, life there was different. You, you had to adapt to, you know, not always having electricity. Um, you had running water that came on occasionally. Um, um, when you talk about living country style, we had outhouses, you know, um, and that's, you know, certain communities. So my parents lived in the more modern section, which was about two or three hours away from where I was schooling. So I had to live with my grandmother because my mom really liked the school we were going to. So and it was a Christian school, so she wanted us to go there. So living with my grandmother was totally different from living in my apartment with my parents. So, um, you know, in, in, in Nigeria, I mean, you've got to be street smart, honestly. And if you're not, you'd be taken advantage of. And they can smell of new blood very easily, but the people are so welcoming. Just as, the, you know, they will take advantage of you, they're so kind that, you know, if your neighbor is cooking, they'll bring food over. Uh, your neighbor can discipline you as a kid. So um, it, it's, really, it's really that village concept that you, you know, hear about. It takes a village to raise a child. You see that there. Um, um, so that was my experience, just going through it as a youngster. And, um, you know, leaving at the age of 19, I wasn't, um, you know, privileged to see some of the business aspects of the country. But what I've come to learn, um, you know, over my, you know, over, over a couple of years returning back is there's a lot of dysfunction. Um, you have people in, in, in legislation and you have people leading some parts of the country that, you know, that their conducts are questionable. Um, but, you know, I think the people right now are coming to the point that we're, they're tired um, and then they're, you know, demanding change. And we're seeing that all across the world now where people are vocalizing, you know, they're, that they're dissatisfied with the way things are going, you know, in the, with the economy and just, you know, people, security, everything, and they're demanding change. One of the things that I would just want to note about Nigeria is their human resources. They have a wealth of intellectually brilliant people that, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, because of the state of the economy, um, the, the disparity between the rich and or the haves and the have-nots is so huge that they are actually losing out on future generation of doctors, lawyers, mechanics, because some of these individuals have to stop going to school after their, uh, you know, um, primary education and some after secondary education to now go work. So I don't think that they have a child labor law over there because I see youngsters that should be in school, uh, you know, hawking, you know, street selling. Um, and this was in the last couple of years that I went back um, that I saw that. 
But culturally, it's a rich country. It has three different languages in, um, in which I speak one of them. My parents is from the Yoruba tribe, um, and um, they have Igbo, Awusas, um, and everyone is region-based. So in the northern region of Nigeria, you have the Awusas primarily there, and then in the southwest, you have the Yorubas, and then in the southeast, you have the Igbos. But, um, you know, there's a bunch of mixing as far as, you know, the different ethnicities are concerned. So people don't necessarily live in, you know, the designated area or whatever you want to call it. People do move around, as you can see in the United States. People go to where there's economic activity, and that's what you see there as well. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, it's, such, it's a huge country, and, like, you know, I, I try to visualize because you hear about the cities, but I didn't think about you living with your grandmother out and about, um, and it's so, such a completely different lifestyle. But you grew up with very well-educated parents, and they wanted, and I heard you say this one time, that Nigerian immigrants are highly educated and they want to get out of poverty, have a better life from doctors, lawyers, engineers, pharmacists. Now, is that, does that crowd leave Nigeria? Do they come here to the States? Do they go to England? Or do you see them going back? Because you just mentioned that you've gone back before. Yes, yes. Um, there is brain drain happening, um, and there are people that they're, you know, professionals that 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 are, that are staying. Um, you're seeing now a, a, an entrance in a lot of um, diaspora looking to go back and see how they can help rebuild the country, um, and um, that's a new trend. Um, they are pushing or they are encouraging diaspora to help come back. Um, but they're not putting systems in place to make it an easy, um, you know, transition to come back and um, partake in the redevelopment of the country. Even foreigners that go have to be careful because you can go into a contract and um, then, you know, put money up front and then, you know, something happens and you lose that. And that's yeah. the risk, you know, that comes with business. But, you know, millions of dollars, no. So, um, yeah, they, they have work to do. I think Ghana is doing a great job as far as capitalizing on the, you know, the return home uh, movement um, with diaspora to get them to come back and help rebuild the country and tap into the brain drain that, you know, most of these African countries have experienced. But um, I think Nigeria has a lot of work to do, and I'm involved in the community here with an organization called Nigerian American for a Public um, Affairs Committee and another um, organization called Global African Business Association. And through those platforms, um, I'm looking to engage and ask those questions. Um, so I'll be, you know, working with the executive director of one of the chambers out in the new capital of Nigeria, which is Abuja. Um, so we're coordinating that to put on a, a, um, an event to discuss not just the tech part of, you know, Nigeria, which is booming right now. I don't know if you guys follow what's happening as far as fintech is concerned and programming. You have a lot of that going on. And you know, Mark Zuckerberg visited um, a, 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 an area called Yaba in Lagos, and actually my high school was in that area. And um, he visited a hub, a, a computer hub there where you have programmers that he wanted to, you know, tap into that, you know, knowledge base. 
one of the gaps that I see that they're not really talking about as far as tapping into that knowledge base also is the young girls. I'm not seeing a lot of them being introduced into coding and science and engineering as a career path. So that's where my interest lies. Well, I'm going to definitely get you in connection with my friend over there, Confidence Shavely. Um, I think you guys would have a really interesting conversation uh, because she works with a lot of young women. And, and honestly, it's, you know, the only experience that we have with our organization over here with the Nigerians is the other side of the tech stuff, and that's the scammer side. And so that's where we need to make sure that, that if they could do for good what is being done for bad, it would be phenomenal. Phenomenal. I agree 100%. And, and so it's a matter of switching. And it was interesting that you made that comment about the kids, the generation um, stopping. You know, if, they, if they can't get to school, they're obviously not going to be educated. And then that brain drain. Um, I have a friend here who was, was working with uh, some African countries with bullying prospects and with the kids, sponsoring kids so that they could continue on to school. It's kind of a pay to pay to play, pay to educate, whatever, you know, if your parents can't afford to, to pay for your school, then you don't go to school. And that's what you're saying is they're not paying for school, so they're going to work. And unfortunately, in, in my world, the work that some of the young men particularly are doing uh, is not good stuff and taking advantage because they're good at it. So that's going to be a really interesting effort. Uh, going forward, but I, I have a note here to myself to get you uh, in connected with confidence. I think you guys would really hit it off. So, well, thanks for that about Nigeria. I, I encourage people to learn more about those places that we don't, that we can't get to, that we don't know about, because there's so many misconceptions about things. America too, and with YouTube and National Geographic and all these great resources we can learn a lot about those countries and, and feel a little bit more comfortable about being educated about it. So anyway, you left. You came here at 19. I am so incredibly uh, thrilled about you being so brave. But when you got here, you ended up going into the Army. Yeah. Which I'm looking at you going, yeah, she kicks butt. <laughs> she got her boots on. What got you into the Army? So that's an interesting story. That's actually going to be part, a little clip of that in my book that's going to be coming out, and we're going to we're going to have hopefully we have time to talk about that. Okay, um, the name of my book is Engine Her, and is a, a, a four author you know collaboration. Each author tells their journey from you know youngster to you know where they are in their career right now and how they got to go how they got to become an engineer. So um, each book is inside the main book has its own title. So my title is Stilettos to Feel Boots. Uh, Deb knows me. I love to wear heels. So I thought it was just fitting um, to, from my girly side to then now my more, um, you know, strong woman side. Uh, so that's why I named it that. Um, but, yeah, I, I'll tell more about the book when we get to that portion. Well, it is kind of but funny. When I, I read it, I, when I read it, I'm like, stilettos to field boots. And I'm thinking, but she started in the Army. She started in field boots and then went to stilettos. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about morphing. That's the whole premise. Um, and, right. and I explained that in the introduction. Um, before I went into the military, I talk about my first heels, um, and it's in the book as well. And so it kind of ties the story together, how my mother um, 
thought, you know, the rite of oh, oh, passage for a woman was to get your first heel, and she made a big deal about it with, with myself and my sisters. And I, I, I really was tortured by those heels, so I remember <laughs> it clearly. Um, so, um, so that's in the book as well. I put a little bit, you know, about that in the book. But I decided to go to the Army um, when I was in Sierra Vista, Arizona. And, and you're thinking, how the heck you get from Toledo to Sierra Vista? Mm-hmm. So my, my journey in Toledo wasn't as smooth as I hoped it would be, so I eventually had to leave the place I was staying. Um, and so that's something I'm having to grapple with and deal with. I actually had to talk to somebody in therapy to deal with the to to deal with what I went through um, in Toledo. Um, that is not mentioned in the book because um, I'm still you know processing that now at this age. And but uh, I left Toledo and moved to Sierra Vista to be to stay with my maternal uncle who was then in the army. And, um, you know, we had a falling out, and he decided that I needed to leave his home. So um, I had, I think I had saved about $3,000 of my scholarship money, and um, the semester was coming to an end. And so um, one of his friends who I ran into and I told him what happened, because I was staying on base with another couple that I met the wife at a in one of my classes, and so she took me in for a couple of weeks. And so I slept on their couch, and because of the military, the way things are structured, unless you're a dependent, you can't live on base. So I had to think quickly, what was I going to do? And so I found a studio apartment that I couldn't afford, but it wasn't expensive. It's just that I was only making like $4.25 working um, uh, at an office, a work-study, and so the semester was coming to an end, and I was going to run out of money. So I, you know, started looking for work. And that's when I saw the sign in the window said, part-time, full-time job. I'm like, oh, interesting. I didn't know it was an Army recruiting office. <laughs> <laughs> so I walked in, and I was like, oh, okay, so tell me about this job. So, you know, as a recruiter does, they want to recruit you. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. So I said, I've never done anything like this. So what is this like? Is it like camping? And the recruiter said, yes, it's like camping. (laughs) And I got suckered in. (laughs) Effective marketing. (laughs) Right? So that's how I um, ended up taking the ASVAB test, passing it. And I had really wanted to go into computers at the time. And I was told that the job that they were offering me was in computers come to find out it was in missile systems. And, yeah, I ended up going to basic training in Fort Carson, uh, excuse me, Fort Jackson in, in um, South Carolina. I went to advanced individual training in Alabama, and then my first duty station was in Fort Campbell. So that's how I became a soldier. I was trying to avoid becoming homeless. <laughs> And you saw the world in green boots, which is funny because when That's you took right. the ASVAB, I'm sure you did really, really well, and the Air Force would have loved you. So why didn't you, you go in the Air Force? Right. So the Air Force had a waiting list, ah. and um, I didn't have anywhere to stay. And I really actually wanted to go into the Air Force. I, th- I think for my personality, it would have been a better fit. 
Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, the Army had openings, so I, I decided to go into the Army. So okay. I had to make a split decision. Well, you did good, and uh, thank you for your service. One thing I did hear, though, when you were in Hawaii, because you were stationed in Hawaii, and my oldest son and his wife uh, are stationed over there with the Marine Corps, um, do you remember what you said that was your most favorite thing about being in the Army in Hawaii? What the you food. did? The food. <laughs> well, tell the food, because the food wasn't at the Army base. No, no, the food wasn't at the Army base. Um, the food... Um, so, you know, they're different. The, I, there's the Army there, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines. So we're all in separate bases. So generally we're not supposed to go to the other base to go eat, but the Air Force has the, they have the best chow hall. So uh, my friends and I, oh, we'll go to like the officer section of the base on the Army base. So we would go over to mainly to the Air Force base to go and eat, and I really enjoyed the food. I really did. So well, that was one you, of my sweeter memories. Glad you didn't get caught, but I also saw that you flew in a Blackhawk. Yeah, yeah. I was on a C, uh, C-130, the big um, airplane that has no comfort in it. It's primarily awful. used to ship cargoes. Yeah, I awful. was on that one, too. And, but the, the, the story of the Blackhawk was just one of my more memorable ones. Um, I was going to school while in service, and that's one of the things that they marketed to, and I, I decided to make sure that I capitalized on that. And so after work, I would go to school. And then one, it was one period uh, we had to be in the field. And so um, and one of the things that was mandated that if a soldier had to go to class, they, the unit had to find a way to get the soldier to class, right? So I was on the big island um, doing training, and I had to go to class. And I was like, okay, we're going to get you there. So that's when the opportunity came, and I got on the Black Hawk um, uh, helicopter, and the pilot was so cool. He's like, do you want to see something really, you know, beautiful? And um, he took me for a, a ride that I, you know, I can still, I'm reliving it right now and just telling you guys about it. I saw the most beautiful waterfall coming out of the natural, you know, mountain, the greenery on the mountains, everything, the water, everything was so pristine and beautiful. Um, so that was a cool, cool part of what happened to me there. So, yeah. Well, it, really it, cool. it makes me smile because my second son is a Blackhawk pilot. And oh, wow. He is, he is not flying in Hawaii today. He is flying across the other pond in the mountains and not a very pretty spot in the world. Uh, but he he's just an extraordinary pilot and he, he became a pilot after he'd done a year in Korea as a Apache crew chief. And when he saw that the pilots got treated better than the crew chiefs, he decided to become a warrant and went to flight school. Um, but yeah. amazing, amazing helicopters. Amazing. Yeah. And he did make a wide, wise decision by becoming oh. a warrant officer. Had I stayed too, I would have gone to officer school. Yeah. Um, actually, in my book, I talk about that too, how, you know, it's, it's important that, you know, people in leadership take interest in young people that have talent and nurture that and mentor them. I had a situation where one of my commanders, she was so interested in me, not just, 
you know, being an enlisted but becoming an officer. However, uh, because I came down on orders and I wasn't in the mindset to say, you know what, can I get a referral letter to my next duty station? So when I came down on orders to leave Fort Campbell to go to Hawaii, I didn't ask for a referral letter. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how I missed my opportunity to go to officer school. But, you know, officer and more in officer schools are just, you know, way um, – it gives soldiers the opportunity to really, you know, um, develop their leadership skills. Well, I've seen my son in the past 10 years grow to be an incredible man. And, you know, he went right out of high school, too. Uh, his older brother went to the Naval Academy and is a pilot in Hawaii now. Charlie got his wings first, and that was one of the crowning moments of his life was getting his wings to fly yeah. the Blackhawk. Just totally amazing. Now, you mentioned that I, I heard a she, so one of your commanders was a woman. So what are the qualities yeah. that you learned that you valued from the military? Because I know there are some negatives to it, but what were the qualities that you valued that you learned from them and from maybe some of the women officers? Yeah, um, one of the things I can say I took away from being in the military, there's nothing I can't do. I, I, when it comes to that can-do attitude, and I think you, 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 you and I have, you know, had conversations. I don't shy away, and I don't let my fear overtake me. Um, I, I have learned to, you know, confront things as best as I can and move forward. And, and that, has, that has been my, the story of my life. I didn't know I had that in me before, but that, that trait has always been in me. So the Army actually helped, you know, you know um, build that to the level whereby I, you know, I'm comfortable taking on risks and, and going for it. Even, you know, when I wanted, like, you know, even when I wanted, you know, take the easy route out, I, you know, like, you know, going back to starting my business. Uh, I um I left a six six figure job paying job to now you know start a new business that I'm not even pulling six figures yet, but you know I'm 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 investing the time to do the work to get there. So that's one thing the army has really you know ingrained in me is that I can do anything. And when they say you know you leave with that can do attitude, um, you want to get the job done, you want to do the job right. I'm very I try not to be as structured. I'm working on that. But I'm very structured in that when you when you're given a task, you outline what needs to get done, so you know you communicate properly, so that whoever is assigned that task can complete it and be successful, so everybody can be successful. So that's kind of what I took away. Made you a very effective engineer. That's that mentality is you know in line, can do, yeah. and and it's great. So you but you left the military after five years. Mm-hmm. Married with a one baby, two babies. Where were you with the family at that point? At that point, I had um, a, a, my child, my son at Your the son. time. Um, yes, yes. He was born in Hawaii. So um, when we left Hawaii, I got reassigned to Fort Carson. And that was a, a very demanding post. Um, they, were, they were actually combat ready in mm-hmm. that we, had, we could deploy at any time. So I was always in the fields. I was really a new mother, and um, I didn't even know that I was going through postpartum depression at the time, self-diagnosed, by the way. Um, But I saw signs of it later on when I started to hear about postpartum. And I had um, um, separation anxiety from my my child because when we would go to the field, I could go to the field for uh, 30 days in a row. And by the time I come back, my child literally would reject me. 
Um, so, like, you know, don't touch me kind of thing. Like, I, he won't allow me to pick him up or hug him. So I became a stranger to him. Mm. So that, you know, was really hard to deal with. Um, so my husband at the time, um, we talked about it, and I decided that, you know, it would be best because I had re-enlisted. I completed my four years of service that I originally signed up for, and I re-enlisted for another four years. I was going to do eight years. And so at the fifth year mark, I was like, okay, I don't think I can be a mom and be a soldier at the same time because you are required to leave your kids with strangers um, because we were both in the military. So we weren't, it wasn't like, you know, one was civilian and one wasn't. We were both in the military. So he had a high probability of being deployed. I had a high probability of being deployed. And we really didn't have anyone that could take care of our child in that case other than daycare. And I wasn't going to leave my child for a year or two years with a stranger. So um, I decided to leave the military while he stayed in and completed his tenure. And um, that's how I got, you know, honorably discharged from the military. Okay. Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, I was on active duty. My husband was on active duty. And I made the same choice after, for me, it was eight years when we came back to the United States. Because in Europe, I had a nanny. I had help over there, but when I came back to the States, it was daycare, and, and I was like, I, I didn't have kids to have the daycare raising them. Um, so it was a choice of mine, like you, to, to step out of that, um, because I heard you say one time that children sacrifice while the parents are in the service. In the service. They do. I see it with my they grandkids, do. and, and uh, my, my son and his wife do ex- go to extraordinary measures to spend time with the kids when they are actually home. Uh, but it is hard, especially when you're when you're looking at deployments. Um, it's yeah, tough, it's, to, the, and you feel guilty. You do. You do. You feel guilty. But, yeah. But but your son has done extraordinary well from all that movement and motion yes. and different peoples, right? Yes. Yes. Um, by the time I left the military, he was turning like three or four. Um, so um, we we relocated to Florida, and we've been in Florida since. He has one year left in college now. Um, he'll be graduating in management information systems. So I'm looking forward to him either working with me or, you know, going out and getting a job um, with another, someone else or another company. Um, but, yeah, he's doing pretty well. That's good. He learned that can-do attitude from his mama. <laughs> <laughs> so now when I, when I saw you, you uh, with JMI, you, were in, you had an engineering firm. You still have that firm, but you're, tell us what you're doing now, because you've transitioned again. You're not, you're breaking barriers, you're not giving up, but you are now, you yes. put your focus into something new. Can you explain to my audience what you're doing now? Um, so I still have the engineering firm. It's no longer an engineering firm. It's more of a sustainability um, slash um, project management firm, and that's where I'm shifting to with the company. Um, and then I decided to start another company um, called Top Consulting, you know, Agency because I was giving away, you know, valuable insights for free. And a friend of mine was like, Tanu, why don't you monetize this? And that's how I decided to do business consulting, helping other small businesses with the, their business plans and, and business development and management and, and marketing. So that's what I'm doing in addition to doing that. Both companies, I'm actually starting them from scratch again because I had a 
you know, an associate with my engineering firm. And so he decided to go to uh, go a different route. And so I lost my ability to practice engineering because I don't have my license yet. Mm. So I'm going to be studying for that. I tried. I just wasn't into the exam. The exam <laughs> and I are not seeing eye to eye. But it's going to have to see me eye to eye. So that's on me. Um, so I, I didn't want my company status to go to waste. Um, I had considerable experience in design to begin with, so that was valuable skill set that I needed to see how to convert to something, you know, that I can continue to use under that company name. So I, since I have my master's degree in project management, I decided to shift the focus on that, and, and now I'm working on a, a pilot um, um, concept to present to uh, municipalities that are willing to, you know, listen to encourage the the um, their engineering staff to be um, certified as Envision professionals, um, and Envision professionals are just individuals that understand the importance of sustainability and resiliency, and they have, they learn how to factor that in when they do develop their scope of work. They develop, um, um, they do um, capital project planning and whatnot. So I'm, you know, working on a presentation, and um, one of the commissioners in Palm Beach Garden has expressed interest. So I'm trying to scale it down because my, my uh, financial, my business financial advisor said that's too much information to give them all at once. You just want to give them a little bit and then draw them in so they can hire you to come and give them the rest. <laughs> there so, you go. You've been very creative and very good at repurposing your careers. <laughs> and I say yes, that because yes. I, I saw one time where you had just said I was fired, and I'm thinking, well, I've been there, and I don't look at it as being fired. Uh, I, I think I wrote to you and said, I think we repurposed our, our vision and our, and our, and our life. Um, and honestly, though, for me, repurposing back in my 20s really set me on a different path, which was the one I was supposed to be on. Mm-hmm. So the setbacks, can you kind of address that? The, have the setbacks, were there, okay. were there ever times when you felt like you had failed or you just say, okay, this is just my next step? How would you move on from that? Um, so that would be the – so I'm going to talk about the two instances in my life where I had either been laid off or fired that had a huge impact on how I, I looked at things. And the first one was – the company I initially worked for coming right out of college, who I had interned for for two years. There was um, some internal chaos with the new manager that really didn't, you know, our energy weren't, you know, in sync. So I had a lot of difficulties dealing with him and another staff member. It eventually came to the point that I had to stand up for myself, and because of that, they laid me off, supposedly Mm -hmm. because of the economic downturn. Um, but what I took from that was that I had to be my own champion. Um, I had in the past, you know, had a mentor there, but he left because he owned his own company on the side, and that was the first time I realized that um, companies don't want you to have, they want you to have all your eggs in one basket, which is their basket, and they had the ability to, you know, take away that basket and you lose all your eggs. And so him being my mentor and uh, him having a company, he was kind of like the first individual that I came across that I, I felt that, you know, subliminally suggested that you can have your own company, you know, and, and still, you know, do what you want to do. So the first time that I got laid off, um, 
I was in shock because I'd never been fired before or laid off before, and I was just panicking because I, at the time I was then divorced, recently divorced, and I had two kids now, not one anymore. I had my daughter, and I was freaking out, like, how am I going to take care of these kids? And um, I'm not one of those parents that, you know, I go after, you know, the court-mandated child support, but I wasn't like, you know, that wasn't money that I was focused on. I was focused on, you know, providing for my, my kids. So, um, so that was, you know, a crazy moment for me. So I started putting out resumes, and um, while I was doing that, I said, you know what, um, instead of just waiting around for a job to come, I'm very good at um, interior decorating. So I started the company Motre um, as an interior, you know, decorating company, and I got a couple of jobs with that, and then um, suddenly I got an interview, and then I got hired by another engineering firm. Um, unfortunately, the economy did tank, and they wanted to put me on per diem to stay with them. Um, um, unfortunately, I couldn't take that offer because of daycare, because I had to pull my kids out of daycare, and then, you know, and, and you know, regroup budget-wise. So that that mindset shift allowed me, one, to say, okay, let's continue to see what we can do with Motre, and then two, don't wait, go get another degree, so by the time you are, um, and, um, the economy picks up, you actually have a different skill set that you can use. And so um, while I was, you know, going to school, for my master's degree, I was still putting out resumes, and I got a, a call for an interview down in Daisy. And um, that job, I took the job. I, I stayed there for three years because that was a productized company. So when the construction was over, um, I had to find out, find another job. So I was interviewing for jobs, but I wasn't, I, they weren't hiring me, hiring me, looking to hire me at the level that I needed to be. I didn't want to go a step or two backwards. I wanted to, you know, keep moving forward. So I was getting, you know, I was sending resumes out for project manager's jobs. They want to give me a project engineer job, and I said no. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go dust off Motre off the shelf. And that's how I got my business associate to join with me, and then we started Motre again. And um, I was successful with that for a short while and then um, had a hiccup. Um, and work wasn't coming in as I had hoped for, and I decided, you know what, let's start putting the resumes out again. Um, and that's how I got to work for the municipality that I worked for for about almost two years. And in that space, um, I, you know, I had already come into who I was, and it was around the time you had met me. It was 2017 that you met me, and this was around 2018, 2019. And I was confident in who I was, my skill set, the imposter syndrome, I completely threw that out of the window because I was like, okay, if that guy can do it, I know guys are not, you know, they know how to sell themselves even though they, they, they don't have the skill set. So I started watching a few YouTube videos on how men, you know, position themselves and I said, I'm going to do that. You know, even if I don't have the skill set, I'm going to say, I'm proficient enough that I can master it on the job. So I took that approach. I got the job, was doing well. However, you know, in, in certain environments, you have to be in a, in, 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 a, in a space where they're open to change. And I came to realize that government is not easily changed um, as far as processes are concerned. And 
and I try to be as transparent as I can. And when I interviewed, I told him, I'm all about process improvement, efficiency, and being effective. And he said, yeah, that's what we're looking for, blah, blah, blah. Um, they just wanted to fill the position, and honestly. And, and when I got into the post, um, you know, my boss was excited because I would always feed him stuff that made him look good. And then when that stopped, because I got over, you know, I was being assigned more work uh, as a, a, a manager there, um, I started to see a different side of him. Long story short, um, I made a decision in, in a board meeting that on one of the boards that I served on, and which had some implications to the municipality that I um, worked for. Um, however, I served on the board for the community that I lived in, and that decision triggered me being fired. Um, was I upset? Yes. I was upset by the approach they took because, in my opinion, they were trying to ruin my integrity. Um, so uh, I initially had wanted to fight it, and my lawyer said, take that money and go revamp your company. Don't. If you don't intend to work for the government again, it's not even worth it. So I let it go, and, and, and now I'm back to being a full-time um, entrepreneur, consultant, and the stress has gone down, and um, I'm loving it because things that I had always wanted to do as far as being creative and being stopped, um, I get to do that with the, uh, the small businesses that I work with to allow them to give them insights on how to revamp their processes and, you know, improve on their products or, you know, look at other avenues to, you know, diversify their, their services. So I'm doing that now, and I'm still looking at, you know, a different approach to being in the engineering field, which is more of a supportive um, role that you generally don't see. So I'm trying to create a niche that doesn't exist. So I'll, I'm going to see how that works out over the next few years. Well, I love how you keep pivoting. You, you know, you, you might come to a dead end, what you think might, well, many people think is a dead end, and you just kind of take a right and say, okay, let's try this. And you're doing that, and this is the part that I really love what you're, what you're doing now, is that you're working with young women, and I'm talking about 18 to 30. Tell us what you're doing there and the foundation that you started, the magazine, the Benwell magazine, why you started that. Let's hear about that a little bit. I think it's great. Sure. Um, so Banwell Magazine came about, actually the Banwell Foundation came about um, because I was approaching, I was getting close to the age that I lost. My mom died, actually. Um, she died at the age of 48, and I was, I think, 45 at the time, and I was freaking out. And I was like, okay, she died, and, you know, we are the only ones that remember her, you know, what would my legacy be and, and whatnot. So I said, you know what? I want to start something to start encouraging young girls and young women, excuse me. And, um, and I based that decision on my experience. And anytime I served on the board, I noticed that there weren't any younger women than myself or other women in my age category. And I thought, you know, we are missing out on a huge opportunity to mentor the next generation of women leaders. And so um, – I decided to start Banwo in honor of my mom to create that, to fill that gap um, so that, you know, I can, um, I and other women in the community can start to mentor young women, to teach them, to, excuse me, to inform them about, you know, how they can build their own wealth. 
because um, one thing my mom made sure she emphasized with myself and my sister was the fact that as a married woman, you should always have your own money. And it's okay to have a joint account, but you should have your own money just in case something ever happens and you're not stuck. So that kind of stuck with me, and I've always, you know, practiced that. But also owning property um, is something, you know, that, you know, was emphasized in my family. So I wanted to teach young women on how to be financially independent. And um, so, you know, that was part of what I wanted to do with the foundation. So teach women how to be financially independent, allow them to, you know, be exposed to the concept of being an entrepreneur so that they're not putting all their eggs in one basket, you know, like I had to do because that was how, you know, the workforce was, you know, you know, presented to people, that you graduate from college, you go work for someone, you stay with them for years and years, and boom, you retire. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm of the mindset that you don't put your eggs in one basket. You put them in different baskets because if one breaks, you are still able to stay afloat. So entrepreneurship is something that, you know, we also looked at um, uh, with the foundation. And then, you know, we um, are looking to educate the young women about advocacy from a political stance in that you cannot afford not to be involved in politics. And, and there's a catchphrase that someone has said to me and then stayed with me that if you don't do politics, politics will certainly do you. And you don't necessarily have to be, a, you know, one to be on the front line, but just calling up your legislator to let them know that a legislator that's, legislation that's about to pass, you're for or against it, is part of your advocacy work. So we're looking to, you know, educate, you know, young women about their role in the political sphere from an advocacy standpoint and how they can continue to be engaged and understand how laws, how bills become laws and what the different level of government does for its citizens. And last but not least is, you know, we want to make sure that our young girls are um, becoming women that put themselves first because we tend to put everybody else before us and that has an impact on our health. So, you know, self-care, self-love is something we also promoting through our health and wellness pillar. So that's primarily how the foundation's focus was summarized, and I launched it. Um, and um, one of the things we do also is to recognize women in the community that are doing phenomenal things in their different industries, profession, and community. And the whole point of it is to make sure we are acknowledging and encouraging them to continue to do better and, 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 and do better for themselves and the community. So Bowel, that's basically how Bowel came about. And the magazine, um, I just decided that I wanted to do that because I've always been interested in art, and my parents told me, no, 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 you will go. I was actually meant to be a doctor. And um, so I flipped on them when I came to the United States. I'm like, hey, I can do something else. So, um, but I've always been interested in art. So I said, you know what, I've always wanted to write a book. I've always wanted to do a publication, a magazine. Why not? And, and we can use this as a way to raise funds for the foundation. And so um, I talked to my board. And um, it was a go, and um, Top Consulting volunteered its services, and that's how, you know, we launched the first magazine, and the second issue will be coming out um, next month. It's extraordinary. And uh, I, I was 
I, ha I listened to something this morning and I was thinking, and I wrote myself a note, it says, how are you encouraging women to invest, quote unquote, invest in themselves? And you hit it. Health, wealth, relationships, education, spirituality, talents, all that pulled together. And I did hear another gal this morning say, the only problem with the youth is that they think they know it all. You know? And if you can get past that part of them knowing it all, especially on the in the digital side and, and the technology side, and actually sit down with them person to person and say, how do you shut off the noise of the world and the idea that you know it all and learn from the people that have gone before you? And, you know, I, I was told at one point in my lifetime that I would teach young women. Well, I always laugh. The older I get, the more young women there are out there. And <laughs> so what we learn as women, you know, comes with time. And I, I've gotten to a point now where I value what my mother has to say, what my grandmothers had to say, and all the, you know, the women that I want to be in 20 years. Uh, when I was in my 20s, maybe not so. Maybe. Um, so it's great that you're linking the linking the, the age groups together and really building positives because the girls aren't many aren't getting married they're not you know looking to a husband initially in their early age to take care of themselves mm -hmm. um, and for instance my daughter you know got married young and now she's a single mom working hard and when I was hearing you talk about you know trying to be a single mom and working it's very very difficult and there's a mm -hmm. There's a whole commerce, you know, that can be built around helping single moms um, because they're doing a phenomenal job. But it takes a toll on on their, you know, health, their wealth, their relationships, their spirituality, everything. If if you don't have that can-do attitude and just like say, I'm gonna I'm gonna rise from this. I can do this. It can be overwhelming. And I I, just, I look at your picture in your in your beautiful yellow dress with a smile and thinking she's doing it. You know, and I'm sure it's hard, <laughs> but I love that. I love that dress. I love the smile. I love your attitude. Um, I can see you, you kicking butt in your boots. Um, so <laughs> how are people going to be able to get a hold of you if they, if they want to connect with you and see about the foundation, about the magazine, and your new book? Sure. So for the foundation, we do have a website. That's www.boundwo.com foundation.org. Um, our phone number is listed on that, um, so you can get a hold of me that way. Um, if you want to, you know, speak to me directly, um, I, my number is, you know, simple, 561-331-2170. Just give me a call, and then we can set something up. Um, if you're interested in my services as a, a business owner or just someone that needs coaching, um, my website for my business is Top Consulting, excuse me, T-O-A-P-C-A dot com, and that's for Top Consulting. I'm launching um, the websites for um, my book, um, a, excuse me, my personal page where I'm going to be doing one-on-one -on -one coaching with young women, aside from what I do, um, in probably by the third quarter of this year, um, and that's just going to be tinupenya.co. And the A2IO website will be launching um, the same time that the book is going to be coming out, and we're looking at next month, which is my birthday month. So well, I might just launch the book on my birthday. Well, congratulations, and let us know uh, when that's coming out. We'll, 
we'll certainly get that out. I'm, I'm sure it's a great read. I'm looking forward to it. So, Tina, thank you so much for being my guest today. I can't believe how quickly the hour has flown by. Uh, you're an extraordinary woman, and I, I wish you the very best with all your adventures and, and especially working with the young women. I, I have, a, have a deep heart feeling for those girls, and, uh, and I think that if they will sit down and, and calm the noise, like we all need to do, unplug every now and then, um, and then listen yeah. to some positive some things, put yourselves around good mentors, put yourself around really good people, uh, they will be able to, to have extraordinary lives and, uh, and thank you for being a part of that. So, thank you. Everybody, thanks so much. Another, another Stand Up and Speak Up has just flown by. I really appreciate you being here. We are always dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and obviously to being your best self. We didn't talk much about today about SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams. I encourage you to go to our website, againstscams.com. If you know anybody who's been a victim of scam or cybercrime, please visit that for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. Uh, I, this episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles and numbness in their hands and feet, Check out our Benfa teaming products at BenfoComplete.com and use the special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thank you folks for being with us. Please go to my website, TheWomanBehindTheSmile.com for additional information and resources. Check out our YouTube channel. All of these shows are on replays with, with videos and they're really fun. So have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you, Tanu, for being my guest. And thank for all you. Our listeners. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. You bet.